Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 3rd, 2010, and my guest is Robert Frank, the H.J. Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics in the Johnson School of Management at Cornell University. Bob, welcome back to EconTalk. Nice to be back with you, Russ. In a recent New York Times essay, you reiterated a concern of yours you've had for a long time, which is rising income inequality in the United States and the implications of that for behavior and happiness, and that is the subject of our conversation today. I want to begin with a very basic question, which is, why is this an issue that we should be concerned with as a matter of public policy? Well, the, the simple fact is that public policy has an enormous influence on the amount of inequality there is, and, and the amount of inequality a country has matters a great deal for outcomes people care about. So those are the simple reasons we ought to be concerned. Is it a bad thing in and of itself? There's got to be some inequality. I think the the thought experiment uh, in which you imagine everybody working all day, contributing 100% of his wages to the pot, and then everybody uh, getting one-nth of the total in the pot uh, distributed back to him. If, if, you, if you play that out in your mind, it's obvious pretty quickly to most people that uh, there would be no incentive for anybody to get up and go to work in the morning, basically, uh, you'd, you'd essentially kill off any reasonable hope of having a vibrant, productive economy. There's got to be some inequality, in other words. The question is, how much? And what the, the knowledge base we have so far seems to suggest clearly is that beyond a certain point, uh, additional inequality not only doesn't stimulate additional output for the economy, it makes output lower and on top of that, it makes people uh, experience many costs as they go about trying to achieve ordinary goals in their lives. So, yeah, there's an optimal level of inequality, I guess, is the short answer. You want to speculate about what that might be? In your essay, you, uh, to my pleasure, invoke Adam Smith and his willingness to write about morality. And you argue that economists should spend more time and effort um, speaking like philosophers and moralists. Uh, so take a crack at that. Yeah, I was writing in response to many modern economists who say that the the question of whether inequality is a good thing or a bad thing is is one that requires a value judgment, and so it's really not the province of economists to speak to. We need to sort of kick that can down the road for the philosophers to to wrestle with. And of course, economics began in moral philosophy, uh, as you know very well. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher. He was. Uh, a, a descendant of Hume's, a contemporary of Hume's, uh, and and moral philosophy has been prominent in the in the discourse of economics all along. Less so today than than it was at one time, but it's coming back now. I think so. Yeah, I think this is this is the kind of question that economists are very well equipped to think about, especially if you take note of the fact that in departments of moral philosophy, there are generally two schools. The the so-called deontologists, those are the people who think, well, there are just certain principles you have to follow no matter what. But in, in the other camp are the consequentialists, and that's where the economists, I think, find their natural home. And, and they say that the, the best choice is the one that leads to the best consequences overall. Now, how you measure that is obviously the, the hard part, but uh, economists are very used to thinking in, in those terms. So we we look at a situation, we try to size up the relevant costs and benefits and decide whether a change is likely to lead to a better outcome or a worse one. Well, I want to derail you for a minute. Uh, I agree with you that we ought to be doing more moral philosophy. I, I don't know if we're very good at it, but since my argument is, is that since we have opinions on these matters, it would be uh, dishonest to pretend that we don't and pretend that we're merely scientists. Um, do you, do you agree with that? 
you know the the consequentialists say again that the right thing to do is the is the thing that leads to the best overall consequences and consequences the way an economist naturally thinks about is uh, best summed up in terms of economic surplus so the the best situation from an economist perspective is the one that leads to the largest surplus. Uh, and for the non-economists in the audience, uh, economic surplus is just the cumulative sum over all, all people of the difference between the benefits they get and the costs they bear, evaluated in their own terms. And so if we can, if we can make the economic pie bigger, the attraction of doing that is that it's always going to be possible for everybody to have a bigger slice than before or or that in comparison to if we didn't do that. Or so I, and I don't think that requires any difficult value judgment at all. Well, I guess I don't agree. So well, let's, so, start, let's start with that. Tell me why. Yeah, let's start with that. Um, well, you wouldn't want to argue that enslaving people that led to great outcomes would led, – led to great productivity would be a good thing, right? No, or, I, think, I think there you're taking way too narrow a measure of economic surplus. Good answer. You know, the the <laughs> – the person enslaved is is not going to agree to a situation like that. No, I, I think you you have to start from some initial position where the the rules that we're going to live by are ones that everybody would have freely agreed to at the outset. And I think if if you were deciding whether to join a society, uh, and one possibility is that you'd be a slave in it, uh, the odds are you'd find some other society more attractive to join than that one. Yeah, I guess implicit in your definition is a uh, is utilitarianism of sorts and I although I was raised that way at the University of Chicago and taught a lot about deadweight loss, deadweight loss being sacrifices of of economic surplus, lost net benefits uh using your calculus. I don't teach that anymore. Um I found myself increasingly uncomfortable because one, I don't think that's how we as citizens make our decisions. Um, and two, there's an implicit value judgment there that all of our gains can be measured in dollars, which I understand that in principle they can. But the last part of the statement that you made, which used to appeal to me, doesn't anymore, which is, well, if we make the pie bigger, bigger we can always redistribute it in ways that make everybody better off. But that leads to the problem of when – we don't make those redistributions. What does it mean to say that we're better off as a society? So I, I've been troubled by that. And so, I, what's your what are, what's your reaction? Yeah, no, I should I should be clear that I'm ta- when I'm talking about the biggest pie, I'm talking about choices that don't involve life and death outcomes. I'm not I'm not saying that if 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 a rich guy is willing to pay ten million to shoot you, and you're only willing to pay. 10,000 to prevent that, that the right thing to do is to allow him to shoot you just because that makes for a bigger surplus. No, you, you, have, to, you have to say certain things are off the table, and, and I think the natural way to do that is just to imagine the situation where people were deciding which societies to form at the outset. Would you agree to, to join a society that permitted that kind of transaction? I think most people would not. So Putting off the table certain kinds of transactions and li- limiting our attention only to issues that involve a small fraction of your lifetime wealth on any roll of the dice, I think uh, it makes perfectly good sense to say that the best thing to do is the thing that makes the surplus, t- surplus as big as possible, because if you don't do that, then why can't we all agree to change from what we're doing now and redistribute in a way that gives us each a bigger slice than before, which by definition would be possible to do if the surplus got bigger. Well, except that the tools for redistribution aren't really uh, as flexible as that, and the non-monetary parts are hard to measure, so the anguish and frustration or lack of personal expression that might be involved in some policies would be hard to to deal with. But let's take it in in principle. Let let me ask you a a narrower question than not life and death. Would you be willing to join a society that had tariffs and quotas? Uh, You know, I think tariffs and quotas make the pie smaller. Right. Uh, I think... They do. 
I think it would be possible to have a framework for political decision-making that sidestepped the issues of tariffs and quotas because it would be in everybody's interest to abide by a set of rules like that. So I I agree with you. I think I'd rather live in a society without them as well, but I wouldn't – it's interesting. The non-monetary part is what makes it tricky and – and interesting, right? See, so see, here's the issue, Russ. Suppose you were a, a champion of the working man, and in the Senate you had the power to block uh, pending legislation that would open the country up to a broader trade agreement that you think, without compensation, would hurt your constituents. It would right. make workers worse off. Some so you've got the power to block that agreement. Yep. You know, however, that if if the agreement's approved, the the total economic surplus available in the United States will be larger than it is now. Right. So why isn't it your best move on the next step to say, all right, I will cede my power to block this agreement in return for an increase in the earned income tax credit or an increase in training allowances or whatever specific form you'd like the transfer uh, to take uh, and just move forward? Uh, A couple thoughts. That's, That's a good question. I don't think the earned income tax credit or the training assistance, the problem is is that that's going to affect a lot more workers than just mine, the ones I'm worried about. Again, that's my point about the bluntness of various redistributive measures to try to increase the stake everyone has in these pie-enhancing policy moves. Um, I guess the real issue for me in that case, and this will maybe get us start us to segue back into inequality – is the dynamic aspects of that problem. So I would agree that my workers might be worse off in the short run, and the short run might be quite long, might be 10 years, 20 years. could be for the rest of their lives they're going to struggle. But I'd argue that their children are going to be better off uh, or their children's children, which is what has happened generally in the United States over the last 250 years, debate about whether that's happened in the last 30, and we'll come to that because that's more to the heart of what we're talking about. But once you start entering into those issues, I think it's very difficult to structure um, side payments. And then you start thinking, well, I'd like to then just pinpoint particular people and ease the pain for them. Very difficult to do in a public policy setting. Um, we've done a terrible job of that actually in the trade area. Trade adjustment assistance hasn't really helped very many people. Uh, and trade clearly has effects on individuals' lives and uh, – Either for political reasons or for practical reasons, we've not made everybody winners from those pie-enhancing changes. Well, but then it seems that the <clears throat> the next step ought to be to try to make those adjustments finer-grained. But it may not be possible, right? I can't. I can't always. I, I guess. Well, if you want to say it's not possible, then the rational thing for the champion of of his union in in the Senate is to block the agreement. Uh, maybe you're saying that's why he blocks the agreement. I think it is. I'm just I'm I make I, I wanted to make a different claim, and I didn't, and it, it gets at your point about non monetary aspects. I don't think the financial aspects of tariffs and quotas are the only part of what makes trade policy important. I think it includes. The opportunity for each generation to use its skills and dreams to shape the world according to those dreams and skills. Uh, it includes the harm done to the person who had a skill that no longer is viable because of foreign competition and what that does to them. Those parts, to me, of the equation often dwarf the monetary parts. And we as economists, we tend to teach the triangles. Those are the deadweight losses, the changes in one-time or a snapshot in time measure of the size of the pie. And I think the non-monetary parts and the dynamic parts are the, are the really important parts of the story. No, but the, the big gains are the enduring gains, as you point out. The, the children and the grandchildren who will all be richer as a result of expanding trade in these ways. And so I think the, if, if the alternative is to block the agreements, then there's enormous latitude for trying to compensate the people who will in the very short run be harmed or maybe even for a generation be harmed. That's that's chump change. I I, I think resistance to compensate has been an enormously costly stance in policy. Let me give you a a 
what I think is an interesting example, which is uh, in, in Los Angeles, in order to meet the air quality targets they were shooting for, they had to adopt really stringent NOx requirements on new vehicles because they were unwilling to have old vehicles comply with uh, pollution requirements. Pollution requirements. Uh, mostly poor drivers drive the old vehicles, and it was thought to be too onerous to require them to comply. I mean drivers who are poor, but I, I, I know what you meant. Go ahead. Yeah, drivers who are poor, <laughs> low-income drivers. Not bad drivers, yeah. So, so what we did was we ratcheted up the requirements on the new cars to meet the target, and, and it was about $900 a pound to get NOx out of new cars. All the low-hanging fruit had already been picked in that domain. Right. And so for the, the inevitable democratic impulse to shield poor people from hardship, we ended up spending $900 a pound to get NOx out of the air, where if we'd caused older vehicles to come un- into compliance with the law, we could have gotten that same pound out for $10. It's and a great it example. would have been way cheaper overall if we had taxed wealthy motorists in, in California a little, little bit extra and given a voucher to poor motorists who would turn in their old cars and get a voucher that would enable them to buy a five-year-old Toyota Corolla or some other complying vehicle. So why don't you think we do that? It's a great uh, example. Yeah, it, and, uh, and I think uh, because it has become a, a slogan in American political discourse that it's illegitimate to tax the rich and transfer income to the poor. And in a democracy, uh, if you don't attend to the interests of the poor in an efficient way, you'll, you'll just end up attending to those same interests in a less efficient way. It's interesting. Interesting point. I'm not sure. See, the problem with cost-benefit analysis, you know, that's what you need to, that's got to be the standard if you want to make the pie as, as big as possible. Yep. Adopt all the policies that, that pass the cost-benefit test. And, and the problem that you hear uh, from champions of the poor is that you can't use cost-benefit analysis because that gives an unfair advantage to the rich. They, they don't feel any more strongly about the policies they prefer. If you would hook them up to a hedonometer, their brain waves would be just as uh, intense about their policies as, as those of the poor are for theirs. But, but because they're richer, they're able to pay more, so they tend to prevail when it's a, a conflict in, in what the two groups want. And so cost-benefit analysis on that view is unfair to the poor. Right. That's a standard argument. There's a very simple, simple solution to that. If the alternative is you're not going to use cost-benefit analysis, uh, you just uh, grant transfers to the poor of a very general sort. And here I, I think your objection to the earned income tra- tax credit doesn't seem compelling to me. Uh, say, all right, give up case. your opposition to cost-benefit analysis and we'll just up the earned income tax credit uh, to, to low-income workers buy enough to compensate for the loss you'll sustain at being on the losing end of decisions more often than before. Every, every side does better if you do that, and I think we should do that. Yeah, that's a different example. I, that I think you have a much better case uh, than the, a particular factory being, being closed uh, in a right. congressman's area. All right. Um, so – Let's go to the area. Are we on the same page there? I mean, that's redistribution. Well, I'm not a big fan of redistribution. I got to think well, about that. So but you gotta, you but gotta, accept your point. Accept your point there that that is a mechanism. If we have a broad enough policy that is that is surplus enhancing that falls widely on the uh, poor, that there is a there is a there is a policy instrument that would offset that. So I, I accept that point. It's a good point. Um. I want to go now. Let's go back. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Let's go back. Let's go back to inequality. Okay. Um, one of the things I find strange about it is I don't feel it. Uh, no matter where I am on the income distribution, whether I'm in the top one percent, the bottom twenty-five percent, uh, if it's growing, which is the claim you make in the essay, and I widely argued and seen in the data that. That 1945 to 1975 was a relatively placid time for inequality. That in the period from 75 to today, the uh, level of inequality has risen greatly. Um, how do I? How would I know that if I didn't read the government data? 
I mean, why does it make me de- why does it bother me as a citizen? Uh, now, so yeah, let me let me just ask it that way. Well, uh, if you if you believe that the standard economic models that we use in the principles course were an accurate description of the way the world works, it, it probably shouldn't bother you. Uh, you should you should be concerned only with your absolute income, and if that's as higher or as high, or higher than it used to be, you could say, "Well, I'm better off than I used to be." Never mind the fact that others are way better off than they used to be. That's good for them. It doesn't affect me. So, so yeah, if you believe those models were descriptive, then I think that would be the the, the logical way to feel about it and 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 analyze the situation. What what I think too, though, Russ, is that those models are not descriptive. Basically. There's very compelling evidence that people assess their situation not in a, a vacuum, but in a, in, a, in a very tight frame of reference that's governed by local conditions. So if you want to know, is my house okay, what's the answer to that question? It just, it's just impossible even to think about trying to answer it without a frame of reference. And the frame of reference that most people naturally use is, how am I doing compared to people in the same time and place that I, I inhabit. So I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer long ago. I lived in a two-room house with a grass roof that leaked, that had no plumbing, no electricity. Never for a moment did I ever feel that house was in any way unsatisfactory. You wouldn't want to live in that house here. Your kids wouldn't want their friends to know where you lived if you lived in a house like that here. But in that context, in Nepal, it was, it was a delightful house. It was a nicer house than... Most people had, and it seemed uh, subjectively to me like a perfectly satisfactory house. So, so what you need, what you feel you need, what you need in order to be able to go out in public without shame, as Adam Smith put it uh, centuries ago, depends very strongly and in obvious ways on what others consume around you. We live in a, uh, a social context, and the, the more others consume around you, the more you have to consume in order to, to just be a, a, a normal participant in, in the social matrix. So if you want to think about it instrumentally, uh, you know, one of a parent's first goals in every case is to send his kids to the best possible school. But the way that works in almost every country I've, I've lived in is that you've got to buy a house that's uh, served by a good school, and since every parent wants, wants a house like that, you got to outbid other parents for it. So, so what predicts whether you'll be successful in your efforts to do, do that is not your absolute income. Uh, you know that, that doesn't tell us anything. What we need to know is your relative income. If you're not in the top half, you're not going to end up in sending your kids to an above-average school. Well, I agree with you that people care about their relative standing. Uh, although I do like those econ one one-on-one models too, but. I take. I think it matters. I think absolute advancement does matter, but I agree with you. It's not the only thing that matters. My question is, if the top 1% is doing a lot better uh, today than it was 20 years ago, which is the case, how would I know that? I mean, and what, what in my daily life, how do I – I certainly look at the people around me, my neighbors, the people I work with, the people right. I play with, the people I, I pray with. Those are the people I interact with. I right. see what kind of cars they drive. I see, yes. And and by the way, I, sometimes I get pleasure from driving an inferior car to them because I like to think I have a, maybe a different set of values about what's important. So it can cut a little bit the other way. But I agree with you that if I'm in a hovel and they're in a mansion, I feel a little bit – my kids and I might feel a little bit embarrassed or inadequate. Certainly there's status issues that we all have as human beings, how we, we keep score uh, in all kinds of complicated ways. But – the the nature of the data that is used to suggest we have a problem in the United States, it's not tangible to me in a daily basis. It's only tangible if I read the uh, Piketty and Say's paper, which you know. Is that if, if I could have drafted a question that I wish you would have asked me, it would have been exactly the one you've you've asked just now. It's it's a it's a great great question. Go for it. And and I'm I'm very keen to hear. Your response to, to my answer to it. Okay, I, I totally agree that you don't cross paths with people at the top of the income ladder very often. At least I certainly don't. Uh, and 
And even if I did, I wouldn't feel any discomfort as a result of that. Uh, what we know, on the contrary, is that is that people actually seem to like to see pictures of the yachts and right. the mansions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they 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 drive pleasure Assumption, from it. Yeah. Uh, that that may not be true in every country. Uh, you know, you see people shaking their fists at the rich and in, in images from some countries. But but that's always struck me as a good thing about the United States that people didn't seem jealous of the rich. They they think they'll be rich someday, or maybe their kids will be, or their grandkids, and so they they like the idea that the rich are living well. So I I totally take your point that that's just not uh, on on the normal person's radar screen. If it is, it's not on on his radar screen as a negative. But here's the dynamic that I think we've we've seen unfold. The the income gains, virtually all of them, have gone to people at the top of the income ladder. The higher up you go, if you look at the Piketty and size data. The the further up you go, the more concentrated the income growth has, has been. So, what happens? Well, when people get more money, we know they spend more. That's not. I think people make a mistake to wag their fingers at them because they buy big mansions and yachts and, and large diamonds. So they think that's decadent somehow. That's that's a total that's what we all do failure of perspective. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what we all do. Yeah, er- everybody <laughs> spends more when they get more money. Yeah. So that's that's not a moral indictment of the rich uh, at all. It's just t- totally what would be expected as a result of the fact that their income's grown so rapidly. The people who are very near the rich travel in many of the same social circles. Uh, and so while you and I don't feel any, any change in our, our frame of reference as a result of the rich spending more, uh, the people who are very near the rich do feel a change. So maybe now it's the custom to have your daughter's wedding reception at home rather than in a hotel. Uh, maybe now have to have dinner parties for 36, not 24. Uh, so, so the near rich build bigger, and they travel in a, in a, a, a set of circles that overlap with people just below them. That shifts their frame of reference. They build bigger, and so you get a cascade all the way down the income ladder, narrow step by narrow step. And the end result of that cascade, or, or the, the intermediate result, is that when you get to the median. Earner, here's here's somebody whose hourly wage now is about seven percent lower than it was in the early seventies. So he's not he's not richer in real terms than before. That person now uh, has to buy a house that's about fifty percent larger than the median new house built thirty years ago. So it was fifteen hundred and thirty square feet in 1970. By 2007, the median new house built in the U.S. was over 2,300 square feet. Uh, if you don't do that, then it's your kids who go to the schools with the metal detectors and classmates that score in the 20th percentile in reading and math. So I think the the middle-income guy doesn't have more money, but because of this expenditure cascade that's a direct result of the higher income and spending at the top, that guy's got to spend a lot more on a house now or else send his kids to an inferior school. And virtually every parent opts for the... The, the the larger, more expensive house rather than send his kid to an inferior school and they save less, they borrow more, they're more likely to file for bankruptcy. If we look at uh, counties where income inequality has grown the most, we see the largest income uh, uh, inequality county growth counties are the ones where the divorce rates have risen most rapidly. That's one of the the factors that marriage counselors always cite uh, in the couples they see, it's very rare to, to encounter one that's not having financial trouble. So the, the more growth and in inequality you see across counties, the, the bigger the increase in divorce rates, the bigger the increase in bankruptcy filings, the bigger the increase in long commute times. That's another margin that families work when they can't make ends meet. Savings have gone down substantially during the same period. So there's just been a, a whole cavalcade of practical costs experienced by the guy in the middle. So where's the data? It's it's there that you see the data on the shadow of income inequality. Great answer. Um, Certainly with respect to the personal tangibility of it. I I have to say, I don't accept all the data premises there, so let me give you my response and you can can fight back. Um, The Piketty and Say's data, which we'll put a link up to both uh, their paper and they've 
it's one of the things that's wonderful about what they've done is they put their data up online so you can play with it yourself if you feel like it, if, you have the, if you're in the mood. Um, it's on shares. It's on the proportion of the pie that you command. So the rich can get, of course, a bigger share, but that does not mean that other people are worse off. It could mean that, but it I don't think does. You correctly point out that median wages have declined in real terms. The crucial question is whether those findings are a statistical artifact or measuring something else. So for example, the crucial period that we're usually talking about is somewhere in the 70s onward. So there's there's three things in there that I want to mention, and of course, it's an empirical question of how important they are. But one is that we've had very high levels of immigration over that time period, which has changed who is the median. So when we take a snapshot of the median voter today versus 20 or 10 or 30 years ago, it's not the same person, obviously. It's a different piece of the distribution because the number of people in the that were buying the median is very different. Second is that the divorce rate has rose very dramatically in the early 70s, starting in the early 70s, which created a whole number of extra households. So often these data are used by – measured by household, which means that, again, who's in the bottom quintile, where you're drawing the 20 percent line or the bottom half, the median line, suddenly you have a very different uh, underlying set of families, and so you're distorting what's happened, quote, to the median person. Third is the price levels incorrectly measured. And the fourth would be, which I didn't I said there's three, but the fourth would be, of course, we pursued a lot of housing policies that have distorted our housing choices, which I'm um, I was naively uh, ignorant of when I used to say that increased size of housing is a good thing, a sign of our wealth. But the most important thing I'd mention, and I, I, this day, these data are not as, I think, well known because they're not politically palatable is that when we follow people across time, the same people, as opposed to uh, taking a snapshot in time where the distortions that I'm talking about are important, but when we follow people over time, they do better. They do a lot better. So the median person in the in the 1970s, if you look at their standard of living over the last 25, 30 years, if we started at a, as a young person, not just from life cycle effects, which of course would always be there, but also just from the fact that their standard of living is much, much higher. So I accept the point that the keeping up with the Joneses can be unhealthy, but I reject the argument that the median person is influenced by those rippling down from up above to pursue options that they, that, that person can't afford. I, I think they can afford more. They've chosen often to spend it on housing and education um, indirectly in the form of choosing where they live by spending more on education. And the final point I make is well, it's a bad system to have your school choice tied to where you live, and we ought to get rid of that, uh, and that certainly does distort the housing market. What do you think? Yeah, look, uh, it's, it's true that there are all sorts of complications in trying to assess what, how the median guy is doing now compared to before. You know, a lot of the points you mentioned, I think, uh, would shift the comparison in your direction. But what we also know, Russ, is that if you look at the economic mobility data, I think uh, it was always kind of a, a point of pride in the U.S. Well, we may have high income inequality compared to other nations, but this is a very open society. If you perform well, there are no barriers that stand in your way of achieving almost unlimited economic success. That in contrast to uh, even societies like England where, you know, the accent with which you speak is still sure. a huge barrier to what kind of job you can be con considered for. Uh, so, again, I think we were right to be proud of that openness, and I think it's still true that the U.S. society is open in those ways. So if you can muster the suite of behaviors that the market wants, uh, you can succeed here more easily than almost any other country on the planet. What's changed, though, in the last 30 years or so is that uh, we've gone from being a, a, a society with high socioeconomic mobility to, to one with virtually the lowest socioeconomic mobility of any industrial country. So if you look at the correlation between fathers' incomes and sons' incomes, that's lower here than in other countries. If you look at the transition probability, if you're born in the bottom 20% of the income distribution here, 
what's your likelihood of uh, jumping into the, the, the middle quintile? Uh, here it's lower than in other industrial countries. These are not statistics to be proud of, I don't think. And I think the, the reason for it is that even though there aren't any formal barriers to success here, if you can muster the behaviors that the market wants, the, the odds that you'll be able to muster those behaviors here are much, much lower if you're poor than if you're poor in a lot of these other countries where the, the quality of schooling is more nearly uniform, the access to health care is much better, the, the rate of poverty is, is much lower. So I think here, the, if you're in the bottom quintile, you're, you're much more likely to get stuck there, and that's not something that we ought to feel good about. Well, I, I think, again, I think that's a statistical artifact. If, if you look at the people who follow in the panel data, it's true that the, your odds of leaving the bottom quintile might be different than in another society. But if you follow people over relatively long periods of time, meaning more than a year or two, more than three or four years, where there's a lot of randomness due to external events, bad luck, et cetera, you look over 10, 20 years, it's true that you, you, you might end up in the same quintile as your parents, but your standard of living is much higher. If you look at the panel data that has been, uh, that's been studied from the panel study of income dynamics, now it's true that in the European data, you might, you might have an even higher chance of leaving the quintile. But their quintiles are much narrower. They have much a much narrower distribution of income. So random changes obviously can push you in and out in a much different way than when the gaps are much larger. And again, going back to our Econ 1 slight disagreement, I think we care a lot about our absolute standing. We also care about our relative standing. So, See, I don't dispute that absolute income is important. I think uh, uh, Dick Easterlin published a paper long ago that first got people focused again on relative income. I, what was the title of that paper? Does economic growth improve the human lot? And he argued that because you can't you can't easily measure any increases in happiness in survey data when incomes grow over time for everybody, that it, economic growth doesn't matter. I think that's that's just the wrong conclusion to reach. There are all sorts of ways in which we care enormously about what the absolute standard of living is that might not be reflected in in the responses to happiness survey questions. You know, if, if you're going to die at 90 because we're a rich society rather than at, at 50 because we're a poor one, you know, the how happy are you today question is going to get the same answer when you pose it to people who are still alive <laughs> as, it, as it would in, in in the other society. But sure. if you ask people, do you care whether you die at 50 or at 90, uh, we wouldn't need to debate what the answer to that would be. So, yeah, I think absolute income matters enormously. And uh, if you wanted to really put people to test, would you turn back the clock and want to live in the 19th century when three out of your five kids would die before they reached the age of 10? I don't think no. very many people would, would want to go there. So, yeah, of course absolute income matters. But the the point is we could be achieving a whole lot more with the total income we generate you know what what's what's also i think not not at all easy to dispute is is the finding in the happiness data that beyond a certain level further increases in consumption in many categories just don't achieve much for anyone when everybody does them so think think uh, about the size of a ceo's mansion uh, if if every CEO had a 30,000-square-foot mansion today and then income grew for CEOs over the next decade like it's been growing and they, they had 40,000 square feet a decade from now, would they be happier on that account? Uh, I think the data on that, on that are very, very clear. Uh, the answer is no. They need a bigger mansion because the standard has shifted. And if they all had the same size mansion they have today, there'd be that, that many millions of dollars of resources freed up to buy things that they would value more than the the bigger mansions. You know, they drive their Porsche 911s on roads that have 18-inch deep potholes in them. You know, we could patch those roads with the money we'd save. We could get them on a train that would whisk them uh, from from Boston to, to Washington in, in two and a half hours rather than have them circle in the air waiting for permission to land. You know, it, it, it's it's just not the best use of the resources we have to have everybody uh, launched in these expenditure races to to buy bigger and better when when everybody gets bigger and better doesn't seem to have much impact on how they feel about things. 
You know, it's funny today. We were talking earlier about the pleasure people get from sometimes looking at, at high levels of consumption. It just so happens that the most uh, highly viewed story today in the Wall Street Journal when I last looked was a story called Dream House in Carmel. It's a um, house that I think it ta- it, the, the construction costs, not the value, not the land cost. The construction costs are six million, were $6 million, and it's a stunningly beautiful house. Now, I don't know if they're keeping up with the uh, neighbor's beautiful house, but it's beautiful in its own right. Um, I'll try to put a link up to the slideshow. I don't know if it'll work, but um, you know, I was going to send it to my wife just so she could admire the aesthetics of this house, the, the, the way that the glass and, and wood and design interact. It's, it's an aesthetic marvel. Now, I certainly agree that there's some competitions in uh, consumption that are fruitless and, and wasteful. I just, I'm not as confident as you are that, that, that I know what they are. But I agree. I, I don't know what they are either. Yeah. I, I know if you're <clears throat> if you're spending five million dollars a year on consumption now, probably the next dollar you spend won't be urgent in the same way that it would be for the the best use we could find for that dollar. Yeah, I just well, well, let's turn to that best use, and let's turn to some of the policy issues because I, I think. The two central issues that we've left untouched, which in many ways are the whole thing. I've enjoyed this a great deal. But what we've left out are the causes and, and cures if you think there is a disease. So talk – because I think those are both tr- difficult. Um, what do you see as the causes and do you think we need to understand the causes if we're to get to the cures? You know, I think uh, a, a lot of – Commentators on the left think that there's been somehow a breakdown in competition, that the the CEOs are earning so much because they've packed their boards full of cronies and are just cutting special deals for themselves. Uh, you know, that goes on. That was kind of Adam Smith's worry, that there'd be restraints of trade. That was his, his main concern about why the invisible hand wouldn't work. And the, the real factor that's changed, I think, is not that there's less competition than there used to be. It's that there's way, way more competition than there used to be. And so if if these problems have gotten worse, it's not because the original reason for them was insufficient competition. I think you have to look for the, the problem rooted in something about the competitive dynamic itself. And here's where I think Charles Darwin understood competition better than Adam Smith did. Uh, I think you learned from him a little bit. Sorry, I think he learned from him a little bit. Uh, he 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 took from Smith and he built on <laughs> him. Yeah, exactly. No, he was very heavily influenced by his reading of Ricardo and 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 Smith. What Darwin saw was that uh, evolution—that was his competition—the the the competition for traits in plants and animals. A trait would be selected if it helped the individual do better uh, in its struggle to survive and reproduce. Whether it helped the species do better or not was a secondary issue. Uh, Some traits, like keen eyesight in hawks, they help both the individual and the species. But when when you're talking about traits that uh, are selected because they help individuals compete with members of their own species... Those typically are bad for the species. They're good for the individual, but bad for the species. And so, if you, if you, all right, think about the antlers of the bull elk. They're they're four feet across. They weigh forty pounds. Yeah. It's it's a horrible Awkward appendage bird. to be stuck with. Yeah. If you, if the wolves chase you into the woods, they're they're going to surround you and kill you in an instant. But they're good for showing off. For they're the, with, they're, with they're the, good for sh- yeah. showing off. But more important, they're good for fighting with other males to get access yeah. to mates. But it's relative antler size that matters, not absolute antler size. And and so it's wasteful to have bigger. If, if they could take a vote on it, they would all vote immediately to have smaller antlers. That would be better. Uh, they can't vote on it. Obviously, they're stuck with it. But but in our case, you know, if if you need a bigger mansion because the the standard of entertainment has evolved such that that that's what's expected of you. Uh, you're not stuck with that if you live in a society with rules and 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 ordered uh, ways of resolving issues. I mean, you, we could scrap the income tax altogether. I think it's really inequality of consumption that's that's much more troubling than inequality of income. Uh, and 
adopt in place of a, a progressive income tax, instead a, a much more steeply progressive consumption tax. So you report your income to the IRS the same as you do now, then document how much you save during the year the way you would for a 401k account now. The difference between those two numbers, that's how much you spent during the year. And then knock off a big standard deduction like $30,000 for a family of four, and that's your taxable consumption. The rate starts low, and then it goes steeply upward as consumption rises into the stratosphere. Which goes into the stratosphere, the consumption or the rate? Both, actually. Both. (laughs) (laughs) So so if you were a savvy rich guy and you saw a a country with a tax structure like that, you could could say to yourself plausibly, hey, I'm going to move there. That way I won't have to blow $10 million on a coming-of-age party for my kid. I, I won't have to spend the fortune I've struggled to accumulate building a bigger mansion so I can entertain in the style that's expected of me because I and others at that high income level will have an incentive to shelter that income in in tax-free accounts and let it grow over time. So that's what I think would be in the interest of rich, middle, and poor alike would be to scrap the current tax system and and move to that. Um, Interesting idea. I'll say two things. Milton Friedman sent me a nice warm note when I proposed that about 15 <laughs> years ago. Uh, he said he didn't think we needed to raise more revenue. That was, of course, when the government there budget was, was in balance. But uh, uh, if, if you think we need to raise more revenue, he said that would be the best way to do it. Well, I agree with you that a consumption tax is better than an income tax. And uh, politically, I'd rather see a progressive consumption tax than a progressive income tax. I think the fundamental question is is how fast that rate rises and, and how high it gets ultimately. Um, two thoughts come to mind. One is uh, no one on his deathbed wishes he'd spent more time at the office, and it's not true that whoever has the most toys wins. So I certainly accept the idea that our material urges often lead to activities that don't create happiness, um, and I think we as economists often neglect that, and I, you know, I salute your efforts to bring it back into the discussion, and certainly – Adam Smith railed against empty consumption uh, and comp- competition for status in, in the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, yeah, he was, he was very, on this. He was totally on it. He, he used, I think, the example of a toothpick holder. It's his, the iPad or um, iPhone of his day said that you know, a man will, will try to get the latest toothpick holder because it's a way of showing status. And I think he's right that that often doesn't lead, lead to happiness. I think, I think the – but having said that, you know, I think the challenge is um, – I'm not convinced that most people, rich people, would say, oh, phew, I don't have to fly my daughter to the Bahamas for a wedding and, and buy the 40,000-square-foot house, et cetera. I do think there's an urge within us uh, for more. That the econ one part I do agree with. Uh, the second part is that status competition isn't going to go away. Uh, so we're going to look for other ways to find status. I guess the question is how effective they'd be and what their costs would be. No, I think we'll we'll continue to compete just as before. It it it's just it's a question of what the cost of the competition is. So so the the racing associations they put engine displacement limits on the cars that that race in certain classes. Sure. That's that's totally coherent. Yep. We know what happens when you don't put limits on, you get the America's Cup. You need yep. to spend 300 million even to have a, a a credible entry in that competition. You get more death in the case of the cars. Yeah. So, so uh, no, there's there's no anybody's uh, nobody's got a proposal that's going to eliminate competition. Uh, We'll compete in the same ways as before. Uh, Winning in this competition means having something that that stands out from the pack, and there'll always be somebody at the top of the heap who'll be able to stand out from the pack. So there's not going to be any change there. It's just a question that we'd be spending less, saving more, investing more. Uh, income would grow more rapidly. Uh, ultimately, we'd consume more than we're consuming now, since eighty percent of a big number is is much bigger than ninety eight percent of a small number. So that those observations, both about the consumption tax and the fruitlessness of of material competition like that, those are true at any point in time. They don't really address the issue of the increasing inequality. Of course, it, they could. Um, but – and obviously societies differ in all kinds of ways, both policy-wise and culturally and in, in how much inherent inequality there's going to be from 
so-called natural economic forces. So when I look at inequality, when I look for my the cures I'd like to see, one, I, again, I, I don't see it inherently as a destructive thing or a bad thing, but I do recognize your point that some material competition is um, not always productive. But I think of public policies that we've pursued over the last years that that have made things worse, and I'm curious if you agree with me that getting rid of these would be a step in the right direction. So a common argument that you hear is that you know Wall Street has made enormous profits over the last two decades. Um, they certainly, quote, don't deserve them, usually said because they're large. Um, I've come to believe that the too-big-to-fail policies of the last, oh, 25 years, going back to 1984, 26 years, uh, when we started bailing out creditors, has allowed people on Wall Street to spend other people's money, both the creditors and taxpayers ultimately, which has allowed them to leverage. Yeah, I, I agree 100% activities. with that. So one of the things that has distorted the income distribution today and certainly over the last 20 years is is that policy, which has, I think, helped a special interest group. Uh, the public school system is not very effective. It's hurting people at the bottom, especially in the inner cities. Uh, the minimum wage is a very uh, helpful to some but very destructive to others. It discourages on-the-job training and makes it hard for people to get started on the income ladder. It would be better to raise the earned income tax. And then finally, you know, my other point when I said I was not so keen on distribution, I really – redistribution, I really meant forced redistribution like the earned income tax credit. I would rather see uh, private solutions to help people who are not doing so well uh, – we can debate how big they would be and how successful they'd be. We don't really have a great idea. We know they'd, they'd raise less money, I think, than the government would. The question whether they'd spend it more wisely. Um, did those appeal to you at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've long argued that the earned income tax credit would be a much more <clears throat> effective way of trying to boost the incomes of low-wage workers. You don't have any incentive for... Employers delay people off or not hire people, as you do under the minimum wage. Uh, the problem is that that's on the budget, whereas the minimum wage is off budget, yeah, so people pay tax. for it in the form of higher prices, yeah. which they don't see as a tax. And somehow we've gotten this this meme sold in, in, in the discourse that if it's a tax, it's bad, <laughs> and we can't do it. Right. And Even I think if, it, if we don't see it. Better <laughs> to, it's much better to pay an explicit tax to achieve a goal like that than to pay an implicit tax and achieve the same goal at higher cost. So, so Bravo. yeah, I think well always said. it comes back to if you're going to do something, do it efficiently. Why, what, if you're not doing it efficiently, you're, you're missing a chance to help the people you're trying to help. Yeah. Uh, lastly, you know, we, we touched on earlier some of the um, differences between Europe and the United States, the dynamism of their culture, society, et cetera. And one of the things that we have here in the United States, which is really glorious, is we have a very well fun good functioning, the right word is our venture capital market works very well. So we allow people to get really rich. So Sergey Brin and Larry Page, they start Google, they leave graduate student status, they vault to the very top, to the highest echelons of the income distribution. They increase measured inequality because they push that top level up even higher. They make a lot of money. They do – I don't know how lavish their lifestyles are. I have no idea. But they live better than the average person in Burundi, no doubt, or Nepal. Um, so they do consume a lot, but they don't consume all of it, and they take a chunk of it, and they use they use it. Google does, and I'm sure Brandon Page – I don't know Page's stuff so well, but – I know that Bren spends some of it funding things like electric cars and things he's passionate about, uh, the Tesla project, for example. Um, that's a really powerful thing. One of the advantages of it is it it allows – the accumulation of that wealth does create that venture capital market, uh, which is really does lead to some some very, very good things. The other thing that it, that it does, of course, is it is – it, for a reason, not what it does. The other part of this, is, which is a little bit mysterious, is that other countries don't have this to the level that we have it, either because their distribution of income isn't as unequal as ours. You don't get the accumulation of wealth in the hands of people who want to do something besides consume it, or for cultural reasons that you know we don't. I don't understand. I don't know if anybody understands. 
What do you think about that? Is that relevant? Yeah, I like the fact that we have that uh, active venture capital pool here, too. And I think that's yet another reason to favor the scrapping of the income tax and moving instead to a progressive consumption tax, because that would steer even more dollars into that pool. You know, if you if you've got your fellow venture capitalists buying cars that get from zero to sixty in three and a half seconds, and yours only goes zero to sixty in four seconds, then your car feels slow to you. You got to respond to that before you do anything else. Then you got less money left left over to invest. And you know, fast is a relative concept. We can spend as much as we want to 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 make the standards for fast go down. More quickly, but I, I don't think there's any real gain to us overall from doing that. Uh, you know, we're already pretty fast. Zero to sixty in three and a half seconds is is mind-numbingly fast. I, I, I drove my first sports car as a teenager. It was a 1955 Thunderbird, hmm. and it went from zero to sixty. I just looked this up the other day. It went from I didn't know how fast. I remember fast how fast you. it yeah. felt to me. It was blisteringly fast, in my opinion. But I looked it up. It went went. Uh, zero to sixty in eleven and a half seconds. A tortoise. <laughs> uh, yeah, today that would people standards. would say, "What what's going on here?" You know, give this give this car some some more oomph. You know, my two thousand one Miata goes zero to sixty in seven point nine seconds. It, it doesn't feel fast to me because in today's context, it just isn't very fast. You know, the new Miata is is able to do that sprint in six point seven seconds. Uh, the new Porsche 911 Turbo, 3.7 seconds. There are cars coming that'll knock that down below three seconds. You know that's that's incredible, but you know it's not clear that the people who get there in three and a half seconds are going to be happier than I was in the 50s getting there in 11 and a half seconds. Yeah, well, having having sat in a Tesla beyond which which I didn't bargain for, but I, I did sit in a Tesla. Which goes very very fast. Um, I forget its time. I want to say it's four seconds, four uh-huh. and a half. Um, it is a different experience. It's not just faster. It's um, it's um, frighteningly faster. Uh, it's blisteringly and frighteningly faster. The other point I guess I'd make is the aesthetic point. Uh, you're right. A Ferrari going faster than a Thunderbird isn't that important, but it's it is a lot more beautiful. It's, well, the, the- it's a piece of art. But in the end, uh, don't lose sight of the fact that if we invest more and spend less now, those standards are going to be reached in the end at a much higher level. You know, we're going to have higher consumption ultimately if we invest more and and consume less now. I'm a little confused by that. So. It's the miracle of compound interest. No, I know, but... If you plot... Consumption in a society where people consume 98% of their income against consumption in one where they start at the same level but consume 80%, you know, the consumption is going to be lower in the second society, but it won't take many years before it it passes the trajectory of the first society. Sure, but I'm just surprised that's a selling point. I guess that's your point about absolute – you will stand by absolute – Absolute consumption. consumption does matter. Yeah, it, in some domains, it matters enormously. I think you know efforts to alleviate pain and suffering and premature death; those are huge payoffs if we can score gains there. Making the houses bigger, not so much. So we're we're almost out of time. Why don't you close by talking about the intellectual road you're on? You. Um, this message, which is you've been talking about for a while. How has it been received by the profession? What do you see as its likely impact on public policy down the road? Do you feel quixotic, or do you feel like you're making some headway? Uh, you know, I, I first started writing about this when I published Choosing the Right Pond 25 yeah. years ago. Uh, that book, I remember, came out in January of 85. Uh, it was my expectation then that by the fall term in Congress there would be bills wending their way through both houses to to incorporate some of the of suggestions I'd made. Yeah. No uh, n- none of that's happened, of course. Or at the UN, if not, you know, <laughs> some kind of UN resolution, if not a U.S. legislation. Uh, I've just finished a draft of the Libertarian Welfare State, uh, in which I, I grant every libertarian premise, you know, markets are 
perfectly competitive. People are rational, fully informed. And I, I add to that the, the very uncontroversial additional assumption that life's graded on the curve to differing degrees in different domains. And I think I've shown that no rational libertarian would choose to become a member of a society that was in any fundamental way different from the standard welfare state. Uh, I think it would be a less intrusive welfare state than the one we have if a libertarian designed it, and that would be good. The interventions would be more market-oriented. They would be uh, attempts to make more expensive the kind of activities that cause harm to others and that are therefore pursued to excess now, rather than prohibiting them, but uh, the, the the aims of the interventions would be roughly the same as the ones we see in the in the welfare state today. So, will that ever have any impact? I don't know. Uh, probably not in my lifetime, but uh, hope springs eternal. My guest today has been Robert Frank. Bob, thanks for being part of Econ hey, great, to, great to talk with you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.